Hey, welcome back, y'all. I'm glad to, to be talking to you again. I apologize for being off schedule a little bit. But we're going to try to do some new uh, new things. First of all, I've got a, a new microphone. Upgraded that a little bit. Maybe, maybe you can tell a difference. Maybe it makes my voice a little bit easier to listen to. We'll, we'll see. Um, fortunately, I just get to say it. You guys are the ones that have to listen to it. So for the folks that are listening to this for the very first time, let's talk a little bit about the format, even though I'm going to deviate from that a little bit some today. Uh, You're listening to Jeremy Takes On uh, HIT, and our format typically is you'll hear a couple of different stories from the week that happened uh, this past week. We're going to end on May 18th, uh, 2018. And so what I do is I take stories and I look at them a couple of three different ways. So the first way, the first thing we're going to do is just tell you the facts of the story. What happened? Then we're going to tell you the why. You should care. And in there, if I do a good job, I'll even tell you who the you are of the ones that should care. And then we get to the third part, which is my take. Uh, Jeremy takes on HIT. Uh, basically telling you why I care or why I thought this was important enough to talk about. So just a few more little housekeeping items. I just wanted to let you know that however you're listening to this, you've got a few options out there. We we publish this in some different areas. So if this is hard for you to kind of get in and get to hearing this, I want to let you know that it's out there on iTunes, Google Play, player.fm, tune in. I was able to get it uh, to play on a smart speaker. That's a little bit tough. Uh, and not very intuitive. The voice part of it didn't work. I, I, Alexa evidently really, really questioned my motives when I said that I wanted to hear Jeremy takes on on HIT. So um, that's a little bit tough. But anyway, want to give you some options to to give me some feedback. Uh, there are uh, the the show, quote unquote, doesn't necessarily have a, a Twitter, but I do. Uh, Jeremy Coleman. Uh, at Jeremy Coleman is my Twitter handle. I guess handle is what they call it. Throwback to the CB days. And you can uh, tell me uh, everything I'm doing wrong. Uh, I have some good discussions on my Twitter account here and there, so that may be it's an interesting follow just in general. Um, my followers can, can comment back on whether or not they necessarily agree with that. So... Regardless, we're going to throw go now into the deviating part. Now that I've told you how I'm going to do it, now I'm going to tell you how this time is going to be a little bit different. I've actually got maybe maybe three stories that I'm going to comment on. The first is going to follow the 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 pattern and the model. This three phases of facts, why, and take, um, and then I'm going to kind of freestyle on the other two, both of which are interesting and I think uh, are somewhat can you know joined to themselves a little bit. You know, I think everything in, in healthcare IT is somewhat uh, cyclical and all comes back to each other. So, e- anyway, regardless, let's jump in, let's get at it, and let's talk about our first story. So the first one that came out uh, this week was a uh, GAO, Government Accountability Office, or uh, Government Office of Accountability um, report that looked at uh, fees that patients are charged to get their medical records. So here's the facts. Uh, Patients have been complaining for a long time about how much it costs them to get their medical records. And so now the government 
the GAO has looked at this. What can they do? Not a whole lot. They're writing a report. It's going to be something that uh, politicians and patient advocates use as a tool to beat up on uh, regulators and legislators to put probably caps on uh, on the, the fees that are charged. So, but I don't don't necessarily expect uh, life to change. So, in one particular example in the state of Kentucky. Patients are entitled to a free copy of their medical record and then have charges up to a dollar per page for additional copies, which is it's not cheap. And I would say it's not cheap. Okay, we'll get to the tape. Hold back, Jeremy. Just hang on. You're almost there. So patient advocates are described, described fees in excess of $500 for a single record. And patients are even charged around $150 for a PDF of a medical record. And they're also charged an annual subscription fee to access their records. And then a hospital's ROI vendor, which ROI is return on investment, charged a, or no, excuse me, not return on investment. Hospital's ROI vendor is release of information. So I apologize. Release of information vendor charged a patient a retrieval fee for a copy of their records which HIPAA uh, explicitly prohibits. So here's the one you should care, obviously. I, I think if, if you yourself have aged enough that uh, you've been a patient and you've changed doctors, you've probably had to go through this process once, maybe so, is that everybody's a patient at some point in time in their life. You, were, you spent the night in a hospital. If you are alive and you are hearing this podcast, you, at least when you were born, spent a night in the hospital. You have been a patient of a hospital at least once in your life. So everybody has medical records somewhere. When you get a delay or there's this fee that you have to pay, which if you're indigent, then you may or may not be able to pay $500 for a paper record, then that can cause a delay in care. That can cause duplicate testing can cause an incomplete record. All of those things that are going to have a negative impact on the actual medical care that you're supposed to receive. So that's the you. Basically everybody. Everybody is you. Or you is everybody. <laughs> so here's the take that I finally, finally got to. Is this is a super bad workflow, especially within hospitals. You have a, uh, an HIM department, a health information management. These people used to be called medical records departments. They are the ones that keep what used to be the paper records in these basement areas and different places in a hospital and have to maintain the legal medical record that the hospitals have for their patients. And so these people, these these Departments within the hospital are staffed very poorly. They're all overhead. There's no revenue generated except for evidently when you need to get your medical record. And then so you've got one person, maybe two or, or a small group in a really big facility that is in charge or manages this ROI, this release of information. So they make sure that you are who you are, that you have a legitimate right to the record that you're asking for. And so when all of those kind of reasonable privacy checks are done, they then go and produce this copy of your record for you to have and put it in your, in your hands. 
uh, or they may have some secure way. You may they may upload it and you can then download it off of a website. It's probably some options now. But in reality, hospitals charge some amount of money, and here's why they charge the amount of money to keep people from actually asking for their records. It is a deterrent. It is meant to be a fee that does nothing but reduce the amount of requests on their staff because they're not staffed to do this. This is like a, oh, by the way, if somebody needs this kind of thing. You know, there's no cost accounting. There's no reason that goes into these numbers as far as why they're charging it. I mean, you go to, does anybody even go to Kinko's anymore and, and, and get a copy? I mean, you know, a, a copy at Kinko's is eat like used to be a dime or a quarter. And, and in Kentucky, they're charging you a dollar. And then we're going to even talk about the inefficiency that a lot of these medical record systems produce the paper records on, how many like extra blank pages, how, you know, so it's totally inefficient and not necessarily even considered what, how much paper is produced whenever you print out a record and so then you're all of a sudden going to charge somebody a dollar to print a blank page. So, you know, it's it there. There is no rhyme or reason. There's no customer service aspect. There is no true uh, consumerism, supply and demand aspect to this at all. This is pure regulatory compliance uh, by the hospital to meet a something that they have to be able to do. They have to be able to produce a record when somebody requests it and then turn around and... Uh, have, they have some mechanism to charge a fee. But, you know, what is the reasonableness of that? And unfortunately, when you have, you know, large organizations like facilities dealing with private individuals like patients, you know, the only real recourse that you have in a lot of these situations is, you know, the court system, which is a whole nother cost above, on and above that. Finally, Let's get down to the real nitty-gritty of this and as far as why this even matters at all that this report produced by the federal government is just going to be thrown into uh, a desk drawer. Not really. It's just going to sit on a server somewhere. And why why am I even talking about this? I've already talked about this for almost nine minutes. And here's why. Because this is another brick in the wall of the case for patients that should own their own clinical data. What does that even mean? Well, there's this movement going on out in the hinterlands that patients should have a right, quote-unquote right, or should at least have unfettered access to their medical record data. Now, I have been on record in Twitter and saying that there should be some some real caveats around that, and I don't necessarily know if this is the forum to get into that now. We can, but there's some very defined, reasonable caveats around some exceptions to patients owning their data. So if you put that small percentage aside, patients should have their own data. Now, there is a huge barrier to me having all of the medical records ever uh, captured around me through my life. Not talking about 
how old I am and that, you know, some of them may be on stone tablets. The real barrier is if you hand this to a patient, say you put it on a jump drive, or they the patient brings in a jump drive and they put it on there. What, what does the patient do with that? Where do they go? There's nowhere for them to put this. There's no QuickBooks or Mint or any platform that can host and aggregate and normalize records out there. And really that pulls us back into all the Apple discussion that we've had. A personal health record, a PHR, is kind of what Apple's doing. Kind of. Sort of. I don't think they've said that verbatim. But they are. Maybe. And so that's really kind of gets down to it is what are the requirements, what are the necessities to have an infrastructure to make patients having a right to their data real. And, and, you know, so that's really where we get down to it is one, if you had the data, what could you do with it? Well, there's some obvious benefits to having your data. Obviously, you're, you're going to be able to have more freedom to go to different physicians to get second opinions. You're going to have more freedom to take, care, to take advantage of telehealth that's out there because you can simply upload your records from your PHR to a telehealth system and then have a consultation. You're going to have more understanding of your overall health conditions because you're going to have your complete record. And that is something that I think we we in, in the industry and then pe- uh, take for granted that we don't talk about enough. This is something out there in the patient land that they don't have, a, a, that they still have a blind spot around. There is no consistent population of patients anywhere in America that has a complete longitudinal medical record. Not from not from birth to death. Now, how applicable is it? How relevant is that? I think uh, clinical people will probably tell, you know, start rolling their eyes at this point, but I'm just saying it's not necessarily that it's valuable for you to know the all the owies I got when I was five years old, but you have people that have chronic conditions that take 20 years to manifest. And there is those outlier people that have those tremendous complex conditions that would be helpful and oh by the way those are the people that we're spending all of our money on treating in healthcare is these people that have incredibly complex conditions that require severe interventions because we can't see the pattern of inflammation we can't see the pattern of, of some chronic episode coming up all right I, I beat this to death Uh, We're going to move on and take a break, and then we'll be right back. All right, we're back. All right, now I'm ready to kind of go into a little bit more of this uh, freestyle. There's going to be two stories here that are going to be a little bit smaller, going to be a little bit uh, less structure, but we're going to kind of throw them out there, see what you think. Uh, I found it interesting. A little bit more uh, industry 
focused around here. So uh, Athena Health announced, or uh, Athena Health didn't announce it. There was a company called Elliott Management, which is um, already an investor in Athena Health, is going to make a bid to buy Athena Health for $7 billion and basically take it back private. So obviously, there you know the the impetus for this is that Athena Health stock price has not been doing super awesome. Well, the growth isn't necessarily there the way it has been, uh, and so I think this is a uh, this is going to be kind of a buyout to try to turn things around. I, I don't necessarily get what this uh, company is going to be able to do. I think they're a little bit disenchanted at the, the leadership at the top. Uh, but, you know, I stepped away probably a little over a year ago from a company that is, that is a competitor with Athena Health, you know, being in the ambulatory, which means the, the phys, private physician practice side of the business. So basically the, the EHR business is, is pretty much cut into two to two hemispheres, you have the acute care uh, EHR business, which is, you know, dominated by Cerner and Epic. And then you have ambulatory, which is uh, a much more crowded market because it's a lot more heterogeneous patient or customer base. You've got physicians that want to still be solo practice, small practice, and then larger doctor practices and then you start talking about throwing a bunch of specialties in there and just you know the combinations and the permutations go on and on so athena health entered the market you know some years ago right around the time of high tech and it really took advantage of that of the money that was out there to push doctors off of paper and onto uh, an ehr and so they they really hit some some not catastrophic, but meteoric growth and and jumped up there because they did two things which were really smart from an, uh, an early company trying to come in there into the market and make a splash. First thing they did is they were cloud-based. So that meant that a doctor's office didn't have to have a data center. You know, and, and data center is probably in the most generous term that I can possibly tell you. Because in reality, what a data center was in most of these doctor's offices was a coat closet with an extra hole cut in the bottom of the door to bring in some extra air. So these smaller practices, and not even necessarily smaller practices, I mean, you could talk about a 10-doctor group. They're not, they don't have enough need to have their own own staff IT department. So how are they going to host a server? How are they going to have an uh, an application? So the cloud really enabled high tech. I don't understand really how uh, doctors would have been able to have their own electronic medical record as the legal record if you didn't have cloud-based solutions. So really you're talking about technology meeting legislation and, and making making that a reality, which the whole concept of a cloud is not as new as it's pretended to be. But anyway, I can't, I'm not going down that road. The other thing that they did is they offered an RCM service, which is Revenue Cycle Management. So basically, what doctors want to do is be a doctor. They want to take care of patients. What doctors don't want to do is be a business. Uh, 
I don't necessarily know that I've ever mailed a doctor that loved billing, that loved coding, that loved dealing with insurance companies. Health insurance itself was created by hospitals and doctors completely to make billing and revenue easier. They were tired of getting paid in chickens, so they created hospital insurance. And so insurance now is needed an extra layer of separation away from the caregivers. So now you have RCM companies, revenue cycle management companies, that do the billing for them. And so how do they get paid? Because, you know, they're providing a service. They got to, they got to get some money. Well, the doctors say, or the way that this is done, is that they just take a cut off the claim. So when the money comes back in, it's like income taxes. They take it out before you ever get it. So you, do you even really miss it? And so a lot of doctors will look, and so yes, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of competition around that. How much, what percentage are you taking out of every dollar I bill? But then at the same time, physicians look at it as, well, but if they have a higher percentage of billing, if I get less denials, if my, you know, what they call AR days, which is how many days between the time I bill and the time that the money comes into my account, that goes down, then it's, you know, I could actually make more money than if I tried to bill this myself. Plus, it's less people in the doctor's office as a staff, which is always um, nice on the doctor's side because doctors don't want to run a business. I mean, that's plain and simple. The doctors that do want to run a business uh, are, are getting less and less. They don't teach you how to run a business in medical school. Uh, they teach you how to be a scaffold jockey and or, you know, wear the stethoscope just the right way so you can look um, very important. So if you want, you know, the, the, the money side of it, and that's, you know, a, uh, you know, a good discussion to have, too, is the money side about around being a physician has changed drastically, even in the last probably 20 to 30 years, which is impacting uh, other other aspects of that. So, back to Athena. So those were the two smart things they did. They were cloud-based and they included RCM services. And, and the RCM services helped pay for Athena Health. So it was already an affordable solution and if you can kind of hide how you pay for it, then it almost seems like it's free. So, and, and it's really kind of how it fit, hits you because a doctor is a lot like a lot of other businesses and, and, and if you have never run a business before, it's one of those things that you don't really think about, but so many of your bills and so many of the fees and things that it takes to run a business deal with cash flow. It's not necessarily whether you're profitable. It's not necessarily whether you have business coming in. It's when does the cash hit you, and you're really your cash flows make a big difference, especially around physicians, because they've got to pay their staff on a regular basis but they may or may not get the money back in from the insurance companies on a regular basis. So again, cash flow is a very important part to them running their their business. And so RCM and uh, an EMR that has an integrated RCM into it makes a difference. Okay, so when they started this, they had huge growth. They really entered into the market as a niche player and then just boom, took off. I'd probably say that Athena Health is, you know, in the top five 
or three of all uh, ambulatory service providers, but they've hit the top. There is not going to be a dominant player in ambulatory health. There's not going to be an Epic. And there's not going to be an Epic and a Cerner that takes, you know, 60% of the market share. It's not going to happen. So, Jeremy, myself, I am in a, a curiosity as far as what this buyout offer is really going to do. How much more growth. Because Athena is, I really think, being measured unrealistically they are people are don't care about where they are in the marketplace they don't care about where uh they whether they're able to even maintain where they are it's all about their growth which is tremendously hard once you get up to a critical mass within the marketplace then you start having this dual issue of having to bring in net new customers but then you have churn and that's the other side of it. If your solution is tremendously easy, then the mar the people that you're going to get to buy your system are folks looking for a simple, easy solution, which means they're going to bring come on today, but they're going to leave you tomorrow. So your your churn rate is going to be something that's going to be a, a tremendous thing to manage. So anyway, that's something for you to look out for. Is is what's going to happen to Athena? What's going to happen around this whole uh, cloud-based EMR business? How does that? What's what's the real long-term impact on that? You know, Jonathan Bush has turned him into self, into such an industry rock star. In my mind, it's not it's not apples to apples, but I don't necessarily know if there is an apples to apples comparison. On it. Jonathan Bush could be the earliest version of of Steve Jobs from the standpoint of somebody whose personality has outgrown the company. And maybe the people that are running the company are looking to transition uh, a little bit outside of the personality of the leader. I don't know. Um, it'll be interesting. It's something to watch. You know, it's, it's something that if you're not, if you don't own Athena Health stock, and it doesn't necessarily tremendously impact you, but it's always interesting to see. Um, I, I will say this: I, th I think Athena is going to end up being a canary in the coal mine for a little bit. Now, what what are they going to? What's the leading indicator that they're showing us? I don't know, but we'll just have to see. Um, you know, an ambulatory ambulatory EHRs is not necessarily a critical, a huge market necessarily for the entire industry. If you talk to somebody in that business, they'll they'll disagree with me, and that's fine. But the real impact that the whole ambulatory EHR business really is, is going to be around fee-for-value. Fee-for-value is what's going to bind all of these players in the healthcare market space together. Because everybody that sees patients that has a piece of that record pie, medical record pie of that longitudinal record has got to play a part in what fee-for-service is going to be. And there's still a lot of figuring out to do around that. So I think that, that everybody, you know, even if you're in the acute care space, you need you need to pay attention. You need to look at this and you need to understand, you know, what are, are, are we going to enter in some phase of, of consolidation? Are we going to go in through a business cycle of shakeout? I, I don't know. Um, so I don't necessarily have a clear view of this, but I'm just kind of picking this up on your radar. Okay. So here's the uh, the last story that we'll have for today. Um, 
and then it's something that's again it's a trend that i've picked up on uh, it's it's not a new trend anthem has been out there you know announced early early in the year that they were going to go back and retroactively review er uh, visits or ed visits of patients and then decide then if they were going to pay it or not uh, and and I, I promise that um, that's not very popular decision uh, anthem i understand the, the, what they're trying to do obviously they're trying to reduce cost ed visits are the most expensive type of health care that you can receive and, and let's also call this out too this is these are this is a trend that is actually a reaction and a response to another trend and I don't think that I've talked about this but certainly it's out there and so you should be aware maybe I'll try to find something out there and bring it up for the next episode but there's this whole concept now these freestanding EDs that are in in my mind and what I'll say and, and would be interested to hear if anybody else feels differently but really, this is a little bit of um, bait and switch. So EDs, I think, are finding that um, these urgent care centers are taking away some of their better paying customers, meaning private insurance. So, okay. So let's. I'm going to stop here, make a comment, and then we'll move forward, and then we'll get back to the anthem picks. So the initial comment is... Everybody has to understand that private pay insurance customers subsidize a tremendous amount of health care for the rest of the market in America. The reason health care costs what it does is because it's a, it's a negotiation between facilities and private health care to basically make up what the loss that facilities have for three groups of people. The three groups of people are Medicare, which is really pays almost at a break-even, Medicaid, which is at a loss, Everybody that's on Medicaid that receives health care is provided health care at a loss. And then self-pay, indigent care, whether you call it charity care or it's just self-pay and you write it off, even if the hospital, and see this is a real hurt, even if the hospital sends that, that self-pay patient to collections, even if the person on self-pay pays the collections company back, 100% of what they owed, which is, would be ridiculous anyway, the hospital or the facility is still going to get paid back for those services at a loss. I mean, because also it's going to take that person 180 or more days to pay back the bill. So again, private pay subsidizes health care for those three groups, self-pay, Medicaid, and Medicare. And so private pay folks before... Urgent care, you know, had the doctor's office to try to go to you know, within, you know, these bankers' hours. If it didn't work out or they were just too busy, I've had doctors tell me, uh, we're full, go to the ED. So now the ED was used to a certain percent of their people coming in with non-urgent care, meaning it's going to be a quick visit, wasn't going to cost them a lot to provide care, they're going to have private pay insurance. We can charge them a huge amount of money and actually, you know, end up making up for some of these people coming in with motor vehicle accidents, having a lot of traumas, really expensive care, and their self-pay. So we're never going to get a dime out of them. So 
What happened is now you had the rise of urgent care, which made things really convenient. You also had this rise of, uh, you know, consumerism. So, you know, the minute clinics, think about that. Really trying to do retail health care, I think, is, is, you know, the nice marketing name that they give it to it. So you're pulling these these cash cows, profit centers, out of the EDs and putting them in uh, other other locations, uh, in more convenient locations. So what did the hospitals do? Oh, okay, well, we're going to meet the co- meet the patient where they are. So we're going to go, a lot of times in these larger areas, hospitals are built or in downtown areas or in areas that aren't easy to, you know, away from the suburb, suburban neighborhoods, which is when the doctor's offices are closed and people are at home, so then that's when they need care. So they're going to go out into these suburban areas. They're going to build what they call freestanding EDs, which is, I don't understand that. I mean, I understand the concept, but you're still, if the part of an ED is if it's an urgent thing, you can go straight from the ED up to the OR in an elevator and they're going to have emergency surgery on you right then and there. I don't have a clear understanding of how this works mechanically, but I assume on the back end of an ED, if you have, you know, if you have to go be admitted or if you have to go for emergency surgery, you're going to have to get into an ambulance and then go to the real hospital. So I don't, you know, there may be a greater level of care at a freestanding ED than what the urgent care centers provide, but I really think that from an order of magnitude, it's not very different. The bill is a lot different. The bill is huge. If you go to a, a freestanding ED versus a uh, an urgent care, you're talking about some zeros extra on the end of your bill difference. I mean, a thousand instead of a hundred makes a big difference. And so people were kind of falling into this, and I don't want to say the word trap, but I don't know a lot better word for it. So whatever they're going to these eds maybe they know maybe they don't well now we're back to a th- to anthem anthem is saying whoa what's going on we got these people going to an ed for an earache we got people going to an ed at three o'clock in the afternoon for a cough what, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't compute. We're paying the most expensive amount for health care that is possible in the United States for these obviously non-emergent things. We have got to control cost. Everybody is demanding that health care costs less. Well, how are we going to do that if we're making it easier to get the most expensive care? So Anthem said, okay. We've got a solution for this. We're going to look at these bills because nobody talks to us until the end. We're going to look at these bills when they come in. And if it's not an emergent visit, then we're not going to pay emergent prices. And that was it. And so from a dollars and cents, from a payer, from a cost control, from all of this, you know, very detached, objective standpoint, it makes sense. But it doesn't because who's going to pay it? The bill is the bill. You're not going to get the hospital to say, okay, we, we'll, we'll mark this way down. You're not going to, 
If the, if the insurer is not going to pay, then all of a sudden you've got a patient in the worst possible possible position. They've been paying premiums for health insurance. They went to go get health care at a facility that's in your network. And they went and got seen. And there were services provided. And now they expect their insurance company in which they paid a premium for, they have a policy in good standing with this company to then do what they say they're going to do. And when they don't, now they have a bill and they have a premium? That doesn't seem, that doesn't work. And so then people just totally foamed at the mouth, stormed into the streets. Somebody's making a ton of money selling pitch forks, and or torches. And so now, of course, legislatures have to get involved because government, uh, this lumbering giant, wakes up and is, I'm sure, going to have some kind of ham-fisted solution that makes nobody happy, which then obviously equates to fairness, I guess, because then if nobody benefits, obviously that's a, that's a fair solution. And Athena has now come in and put some exceptions into their rules. That way they can declare that they're hearing the voice of the people. Uh, I don't know whether anybody that's a descendant of Marie Antoinette is working for Anthem, but, um, you know, we'll see how this goes. Uh, again, this is more along the lines of healthcare costs have to change, meets consumerism, meets retail healthcare meets all of this mushy middle stuff where there's not a lot of leadership because you have all of these people mushing together in these transactions. And what we also show, and as, as I wrap up, this kind of the last concept that uh, I'm just going to mention, I'm not even going to spend uh, five minutes on it. You as a listener... You're, you're here listening to me. You're in the healthcare IT industry. You understand a lot of these concepts that I talk about. I am asking you, as someone that, is, that has education in this area, to be an educator to the people around you. Teach your children what, this, what these things mean. Teach your children to understand healthcare insurance. Teach your children to understand healthcare delivery. They don't have to go into healthcare. They don't have to be in IT, but they need to understand because they're going to be a patient what these choices mean. Teach your parents, teach your in-laws, teach your spouse. You have to be an educator because these concepts are not going to get easier. There's no, there's not going to be anyone out there. I don't see a a business model, although I see a tremendous need. I don't see a business model today for someone to be a healthcare spectrum advisor like you have a Charles Schwab or uh, an, uh, an, some investment guy, money guy that tells you put your money in this stock. There's not going to be somebody that holds your hand and takes you through healthcare. There needs to be. There's not. Not today, not tomorrow, not next year. So you have to take up the... Uh, Take up the, the, the cross, take up the, the responsibility. Just, you know, I mean, you know, if you think about, you know, you're going to basically be Sacagawea. And the people around you are Lewis and Clark looking for the Pacific Ocean. 
and you've been there. You know, however, you, what part of the job you're in, whatever you do, you kind of understand what's going on. You've got to be the guide. You've got to be the leader and, and really help people. And if you can push that out into your community, then all that's going to do is benefit everybody. All right. Um, as I wrap up here, I want to give uh, an announcement that uh, this may be one of uh, the last formats like this. I'm really doing some exciting things in my mind uh, to try to change a little bit of how this is going to be delivered from a, uh, a format standpoint. I've got some people that are uh, willing to uh, do this with me, which is tremendously exciting. I've got a lot of in my mind, there's exciting things coming up. So stay tuned, stay with me, and uh, I think this is going to get um, even better because, I mean, really, how could it get could it get any worse? I mean, really. But thanks. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you. I appreciate everybody that takes time to listen. Uh, I appreciate everybody that gives feedback. Uh, that's really, uh, I'm really grateful uh, to, uh, to all those people. And uh, as I close out here, I just, uh, my time... Uh, my time is up, and of course, I thank you for yours.